And now, the show that bridges the gap between faith and business. Welcome to Bottom Line Faith. On today's show, Randy Ostra, President and CEO of Prometica Health System. You know, I think the thing that's to me most interesting is the example of Christ. So you look at everything from his vision, um, the vision he was casting, what he was trying to do, um, you know, the time he spent with his disciples. And, um, you know, to me it's fascinating. He didn't surround himself with CEOs. He didn't uh, surround himself with college professors. There were no professional athletes. And he surrounded himself with people, and yet he, those disciples were the people that he mentored and guided every day. Well, hello, everyone. This is Ray Hilbert, your co-host of the Bottom Line Faith audio podcast. It is your weekly look into the lives and hearts of high-capacity, high-performance Christian leaders from the world of business, uh, entertainment, and athletics, as well as nonprofit leaders. Uh, As mentioned, I am your co-host, Ray Hilbert. Our other co-host, Adam Ritz, is uh, out of town and, uh, and traveling this week, so I get the pleasure of conducting this week's interview, and I am really excited about uh, our special guest today because this guest uh, has a a broad sense of uh, experience, but particularly in an industry that is rapidly changing and under a lot of pressure and a lot of constraints that are being placed on it in the marketplace. Well, folks, our guest this week is Mr. Randy Ostrin. He is the president and CEO of ProMedica, and uh, here in the Toledo, Ohio area. And so, Randy, welcome to the Bottom Line Faith Podcast. Oh, thank you. Great to be with you. Randy, tell us a little bit about your background. We're going to have plenty of time to jump into the questions on leadership and challenges, but just help our audience understand a little bit about you and your background, where you grew up, all those good things. Yeah, great. Well, I appreciate that. Well, you know, uh, uh, Ostra is a Dutch name, so I actually grew up in uh, northwest Iowa. And uh, if you look at how the Dutch immigrated and settled across the United States, there is different you know, different groups across the country, and there's a group in uh, northwest Iowa, farm country. I uh, grew up in a family. Um, my mom immigrated with her parents. My father, um, his, uh, shortly after his parents immigrated, uh, he was first generation. He was the oldest of 14 kids. Wow. And so uh, they, uh, neither of them had the opportunity to go to school. Uh, if you asked them about it, um, you know, they would have said that, you know, maybe second or third grade, but they were the oldest, and so they worked. And so I had these great Christian parents, um, um, Dutch, uh, grew up in the Christian Reformed Church, um, you know, uh, my wife grew up in the Reformed Church of America, uh, and, uh, you know, we were of families that you didn't miss church, you didn't miss Sunday school, uh, you went to everything. Uh, my wife's uh, family was a little better. Um, she actually had perfect attendance, I think, through <laughs> high school uh, for Sunday school, so that tells you a lot. But I had this great blessing of Christian parents, um, had the opportunity. Uh, in those days, they uh, let you go from school to go to catechism, both the Christian school and the public school. So really kind of a unique place and a, a unique time, a great faith-based community, and just had the luxury of having uh, Christian parents, uh, Christian friends, great Christian atmosphere to grow up in, and was blessed um, Went to uh, school, went to a small church college right okay. there in Orange City, Iowa, called Northwestern, or Northwestern College, part of the Reformed College of America. And uh, there was a place where I just had some great mentors, um, you know, people that uh, took you under their wing and kind of helped mold you. Um, I had an older brother and sister, and uh, they were both teachers. And so I kind of thought that way for a while, but had a, um, a great professor that kind of guided my career. And I think the same thing for my wife. Had, she was in mathematics and had somebody guide her career. 
And uh, just, you know, it was a great place to grow up. My uh, wife and I met a few years later after college. We'd okay. gone to the same college, but um, didn't really interact so much and met. Um, she was working for Bibles for the World, and I was taking a, a break after graduate school, trying to make a little money to keep going to school. And we met, got married, and then changed our lives. So uh, went a little different course. And so uh, I want to hear more about the story of how you ended up in the healthcare field, but tell us a little bit about ProMedica and your sure. role there. Uh, ProMedica is uh, what we would call an integrated delivery system. So it's what that means. Um, it's a kind of something that came out of the 70s where the idea was you take care of people, you know, kind of cradle to grave, and you have all these integrated services. And so you see a lot of these systems. So uh, it has hospitals. So we have 13 hospitals, Northwest Ohio, Southeast Michigan. Uh, we employ doctors, so we have about 900 employed uh, different kind of providers. Uh, we work with about 2,500. Um, we have an uh, insurance company. It's called Paramount. It's got about 325,000 members and then do a lot of things um, around the hospital, post-acute type services, long-term care, those sort of things. So when you roll that up, um, we have about 17,000 employees, okay. um, around $3 billion in revenue. Um, so, you know, fairly large regional healthcare system. We're based here in Toledo, Ohio. So a lot of it has focused on how far can you go away from any community and get people to travel there for care. Yeah. So if you looked at a map, pretty logical when you looked at that. It's uh, southeast um, Michigan counties in northwest Ohio. That's terrific. And did you always know you wanted to get into health care? How did that come about? You know, I uh, started out, um, I was, uh, I had my uh, uh, brother and sister were teachers, so I was going to teach, be a coach, uh, was interested, um, played, you know, football in high school and college, small college football, yeah. so always thought about that. Then I got there and I thought, boy, I don't want to do this the rest of my life, <laughs> um, between student teaching and biology, and then uh, just just you know, playing football, decided that really wasn't right for me. Decided to become a physical therapist for a while, and um, uh, you know, again with this kind of sports uh, idea in mind. And then a, uh, a professor um, from Northwestern really started to kind of just talk to me a lot about kind of my future and where um, you know I should go, and really kind of convinced me to to you know teach in college. So okay. that yeah. thought that would be a good path. He was a medical technologist, so he had some additional lab training. So I did that and then went to graduate school to teach. Uh, and the idea was to get a doctorate in microbiology. But after I got a master's, um, I took a break, as I mentioned, to earn a little money. I met my wife. And I got a job working for um, a company that was based in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. It was uh, owned and run by a, a group of physicians. And they provided services um, to small hospitals um, across the Midwest. And I spent a fair amount of time traveling through the Dakotas, Nebraska, Iowa, Minnesota, probably been to every small town in all those <laughs> states, and spent some time uh, going to public health service hospitals on the Indian reservations. And, you know, um, had a tremendous impact on me what, you know, that experience was. And one day we were flying and the, uh, the president of the company asked me what I was going to be doing when I was 50 years old. So at the time, I'm 28. And it was kind of one of those things. Um, we flew single-engine planes, very noisy. So I'm kind of yelling at him, like, what did you say? And he said, what are you going to be doing when you're 50 years old? You won't be doing this. And so that precipitated a bunch of discussions. So I went through a process of deciding um, where we should go in life. Yeah. So I uh, looked at Christian counseling, took the LSATs, decided maybe I should be a lawyer, and also continue to think about um, healthcare administration. Yeah. So... I won't bore you with the details, but ended up going back to the University of Minnesota 
at 30 years of age. So my wife and I quit our jobs, uh, sold our house, sold our cars, um, went back to school, took a complete pivot in life, worked our way through. The money we had we put away, so we were going to live on what we made. So cleaned our apartment building for free rent. Um, I cleaned a bank at night. My wife did income taxes. Um, Two-bedroom apartment, two little kids, and uh, so we started over in life. What was interesting was the reason he was telling me, asking me what I was going to be doing uh, at 50 years old, uh, the company was in the process of being sold. And shortly after I made it to the University of Minnesota, uh, they were sold, and they don't exist today. So a little grace of God there about pushing pushing in the right direction. That's that's a really amazing story. And I also see many, many strong indications of that good old Dutch reform work ethic in there. Yeah, well. well, exactly right. Exactly right. You know, uh, you're going to get it done. You're going to get it done. Exactly right. Yes. <laughs> that is, that yeah. is fantastic. Uh, we're going to talk in just a moment about leadership, lessons learned, and so forth. But take a moment and just uh, give a synopsis of, from your viewpoint the healthcare field, obviously, rapid changes going on, all kinds of tension and pressures there. What's that look like? Yeah, you know, it's an um, interesting case study. You know, people look at healthcare and they go, like, you know, how did we get to this point in life? And if you look at it where we are today, you know, we're a $4 trillion industry um, consuming almost 20% of the gross domestic yeah, product, yeah. Uh, and it's going to continue to go up. So now they're talking $5 trillion and 25%. We really can't afford it. You go back in history, um, and a couple things happened. Post-World War II, post-Depression, we passed something called the Hilburton Act, and it was a, a really well-intentioned. It was a job creator, uh, and after the war and Depression, uh, the hospitals were in bad shape. A lot of clinical advances in World War II, if you can imagine these life. You know, it's interesting to look at life events. So um, I think it was Truman decided we we're going to put veterans back to, you know, back to work. We're going to mm-hmm. build hospitals. We built 195,000 beds. So that's 4,050-bed hospitals uh, in this country. And so we built this big structure. It was thought to be a job creator, a great thing to do for communities. It was. 1965, we passed Medicare. And great thing to do, we were trying to provide care for uh, seniors that needed health insurance. But the problem was we didn't put any controls on it. So what grew out of that was an industry. um, And in those days, um, Medicare also paid your capital costs, their share of it. So there was no reason not to build dramatically. And so we built up this huge industry that is less focused on preventative care, primary care, mental health services that we see in Europe. And so now we have a model that we can't afford, but no political will to change it. The Affordable Care Act did some nice things in that it um, put some money in innovation. It also um, you know, uh, added a number of people to the insurance rolls, somewhere between 20, 25 million. That's a good moral thing to do. But it did nothing for the cost curve, even though they, they are paying us a little differently, more for value. So it's a mess. Um, and um, we would like it to move to more of a social determinant sort of role. But that's probably a long discussion for another That'd day. That'd probably be if our program was an hour long. We yeah, we can talk that. a lot about it. It's fascinating. <laughs> but it's a bit of a mess, and yeah, uh, we need yeah. to change the model. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think it's going to change when finances make it change. Yeah. And that's usually what happens. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Thank you for that background, not only personally and spiritually, but, you know, from a career standpoint. So I'd like to just dig into some of the meat and substance of our program. What I'd love to kind of maybe kick off the the conversation with, uh, Randy, is this question. Thinking back over the course of your career, uh, we all make mistakes. We all have failures. What would you say is a big mistake or a failure that you went through 
uh, and what did you learn from it? Yeah, I think the hardest things that, um, at least that I felt in my career, was the, the decisions that impact people. So when uh, you get yourself in a situation where you have to actually think about laying people off or impacting people's lives, I uh, uh, ran a bankrupt hospital, and a, a hospital that it actually was, they were bankrupt, no doubt about it. And we had to lay off um, 60 people in a small town in Michigan. And I uh, went through a process, I was new there, and um, uh, what was interesting was just, you know, just dealing with the impact of people and the, the, the re what happened, the result of management actions and not taking good steps along the way got this hospital in a situation where they needed to light people off. And as much as I tried to change it, I couldn't. You look back at those days and think, well, ahead if, I, if I had done this, I, if I had done that, could I have saved more lot, um, jobs and, you know, protected people's lives? So those are things that kind of, you know, conch you a little bit. You know, you always wonder if you're doing the right thing, if you did the right thing along the way. I think the point there is just, you know, really, I think it's a good um, – you know, uh, motivator for just good, solid management and for those folks in management to do the right things, to get up every day, to work hard, to, to really analyze situations from all aspects and make the decisions you need to. It's that whole notion, I think, of creating urgency in companies. So when I look at the times that I think I failed, it's on some of those issues where, you know, you get yourself in an economic position, you have to impact people's lives. Sometimes that's inevitable, right? And, um, and I, I don't care how many times you go through it and how many people have to be a part of that. It still hurts, and right. it's, it's not an easy thing to do. And, and uh, if it ever doesn't bother us, we might want to check ourselves, right? right. No, exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah, these are real lives yeah. that we're, we're, we're working through here. So uh, let's talk a little bit about your philosophy in terms of how do you attempt to live out your faith in your leadership down and through your organization? How, how did those biblical principles come to life in sure. your leadership? Well, you know, I think there's a couple cuts. So I don't, um, I've worked in faith-based healthcare before, and uh, right now I'm in a, um, an organization that's not faith-based, yeah. although some of our hospitals have, have uh, roots in different type of churches and things. And I think it's, uh, you know, I think um, as a person of faith, as a Christian, it, it can't help but impact your lives. And, uh, you know, I think the thing that's to me, most interesting is the example of Christ. So how Christ, you know, his life um, on earth. So you look at everything from his vision, um, the vision he was casting, what he was trying to do, um, you know, the time he spent with his disciples. And, um, you know, to me, it's fascinating. He didn't surround himself with CEOs. He didn't sur uh, surround himself with college professors. There were no professional athletes. Right. And he surrounded himself with people. And yet he, those disciples were the people that he mentored and guided every day. And then it's just the empathy he had for people. I mean, just the opportunities, um, you know, to uh, cast a stone at somebody and uh, just to lift people up. And I think it's that grace uh, and it's the, um, we would call it emotional intelligence, but I think it's grace where he looked at people that had uh, less than uh, perfect lives yeah, right. and said, sin no more. Um, and I think um, those are the sort of things I look at, you know, just what Christ did, um, how he developed his disciples, how he cast a vision. And um, he was a great change the ultimate change, um, you know, changer of our world, and he did that by creating urgency. And there's a lot of things um, in his life, whether it's, uh, you know, overturning the, the tables in the, the temple or what, whatever he did, he was to create some urgency to change. And I think you look at those biblical, um, you know, um, principles in life, you think about how Christ lived his life, and then just how he approached people, whether it was children, whether it was the poorest of the poor, 
And I think it really, I think as leaders, um, rather than chasing a, a professional sports athlete, you know, athlete and thinking about what yeah. their vision of life, not, not to say that's not at all good, uh, but I think it's just you look at that and you think about that example for our lives and our management style, and I think uh, those are the sort of things you, you really want to uh, model to, to people. Yeah, really check and see who, who we're wanting to model ourselves after right. and what difference they're making. Yeah. And uh, obviously Jesus is the ultimate role model there. Tell, tell me a little bit about your philosophy uh, and approach to mentoring leaders who are coming behind you, that next gen of leader. How, how do you go about that? Sure. Well, uh, you know, there's um, done it different ways throughout my career, and it's a little different right now than it's mm-hmm. been in the past. I think it's really uh, taking the time, you know, to really uh, talk to young leaders, mentor young leaders. Um, for example, in our executive group, we have uh, invited guests that we invite into our executive group every year. Um, we have one to two um, young leaders with us, and so the deal is you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna be part of our group for one to two years, and um, you're gonna be with us. We're gonna you're gonna go to every meeting. You're gonna be part of every discussion, and then at the end you're gonna go back to your job. So we've done that with you know having uh, what we call residents or fellows or interns, and then we've also done it with our mid management people to allow them to come in. Um, we do a um, I do a colloquium. Don't ask, I didn't pick the name for that. Um, but it's where I usually um, spend some time with 30, of, given the size of our organization, 30 leaders. I think we've done that four or five times. We talk to them about uh, writing their own view of leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great article from the Harvard Business Review, The Incomplete Leader. And so the notion is we're all incomplete leaders. We know that because of our faith in sin. And so each and every day it's about being more complete leaders. So I think it's that. I think it's this constant um, focus on young people mentoring. Um, You know, one thing, um, I spend a lot of time having a cup of coffee with people. So several times a week I'll sit down with people that don't report to me. Um, What I've come to do a lot is I text people and, and just check in. And uh, usually I'm saying, hey, yeah. you know, Ray, I'm just checking in how are things going. And I usually get a page back. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just letting people know. And then I've been able to uh, engage people a lot. So I think it's just everybody figures out a way to do it for them. But I think between structured programs, informal programs, or letting people hang with you, to kind of that one-on-one feedback, um, I think those are all sort of things that I think for each one of us um, can work differently for, for each leader. Yeah, what I hear in that is uh, there's a lot of intentionality. Um, you know, John Maxwell says that uh, leaders are, of course, they're born, but right. but there's also made, right? In that there's intentionality in investing and so forth. And so, who who was it who invested in you? Who helped you when you were a young leader? understand those those issues, those challenges, those pressures and demands? Who brought you along as a young leader? You know, I, um, um, I had a boss when I got into uh, healthcare administration, my first boss, and uh, the first, uh, when I went to work for him, he told me uh, very clearly, he said, I'm going to invite you to all my meetings. I want you to uh, wear, you know, your best, you know, suit and tie. I want you to pull up to the table, put your um, forearms on the table. I want you to look engaged and keep your mouth shut. And I will tell you when you can open your mouth. So, and after every meeting, we would talk, and he would say, "What'd you see? What'd you hear? Did you see Ray in the corner? What was Ray's body language telling?" And you know, early on, it was like, "Who's Ray?" Yeah, you know, what Ray are you was about? Yeah. yeah, and and uh, did a great job. But then I had a boss in Grand Rapids, Michigan, a guy named Terry O'Rourke. And he had a, just a phenomenal business sense. Um, you know, we would call that probably critical business thinking skills. And it was really bla- uh, based on uh, business plans. So I probably, 
get 100 business plans. I always told him I'm going to create a business plan that you're going to tell me you have no questions. And, he, of course, that never happened. But it was really just those good training. It was like how do you conduct yourself, how do you observe people. Um, both of those um, gentlemen were the last to talk. And um, to this day, I listen to discussions. I write questions in the corner. I ask everybody, and then uh, if I talk, I talk at the end. And it's just allowing the, the discussion to happen. And again, um, I'd like to say I created that. I didn't. I just had a couple good mentors along the way. And again, when you learn from uh, and, and you start to um, you know, work that way yourself, you want to be able to kind of take what you learn from those folks and pass it on as, as we all want to do in life. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's terrific. Folks, uh, this is your co-host of Bottom Line Faith, Ray Hilbert. I am speaking with Randy Ostra, the president and CEO of ProMedica. Randy, let me ask you this. Uh, tell us a little bit about um, maybe some of your principles of leadership, success of leadership. What's really important for you to model and demonstrate and teach? Well, you know, I think a lot of it's... Um, in, it, you know, I have to admit, it changes from time to time. Yeah. You know, I think, you know... Um, uh, credibility is is got to be be number one because if you lost credibility, people don't have trust in you. People don't believe in you as a person. They're not going to follow you no matter what you say. So I think it's always that constant of uh, watching out. Um, you know, you look at people that have. We all get when we get blessed in life that it's easy to um, be tempted to take you know advantage of, of institutions and opportunities. I think you just have to constantly um, be aware of that. So I think credibility is number one, and then I think it's just you know um, making sure that you kind of move organizations forward and move people forward and move whatever part of the organization. And that's different things for different people. So I look at my job a lot in um, yes, making sure that. Um, uh, and maybe it's my age speaking, but but making sure that you're presenting yourself in a really trustworthy manner and being credible. And then the other thing is just creating urgency. So mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time. I tell you know, people ask me what my job is. Is I, I either say create urgency and get out of the way, or create urgency and tell them it's going to be okay. One <laughs> of those two. And I think that's it because a lot of it's still. I go back to my mentors. It's it's creating good solid plans, uh, creating urgency. And um, I'm always surprised when I. Ask Ray. Um, I need a plan for X, Y, Z. Can you do that? Yeah, yeah, I can do that. Uh, when can you do it by? Oh, I, can you get that done in 30 days, 60? Oh, I can get that done in 60 days. I know they can't, but every single time they commit to it, and it, what it really does, it allows you to kind of elevate um, the organization. I think so. So I look at it in those contexts about, uh, uh, and each area is different. Each person is different. Each each part of our organization is different. There are part of our organizations I would give a. Uh, an A minus to, and there are parts I'd give a C minus to, yeah. and it's working on the C minus issues. Uh, next year there'll be other C minus issues, and I think for any person in an organization, it's really trying to move move yourself forward. And I think along the way, just as you you know um, conduct yourself, as you uh, hopefully your model to other people, it's how you live your life. It's what you say. It goes back to that trust and credibility um, notion. And again, just as Christians, we know that's going to uh, witness to other um, as people know your faith. Yeah. That, uh, thank you. Very very good. Very good insights. So, CEO, president. I think you said seventeen thousand employees. Is that correct? Right. And uh, married, you've talked about your, your marriage, family, church, community, lots and lots of things on your plate. There's probably a listener right now, a leader who's really struggling right now with just the busyness of life and demands of their schedule, and they're wondering how they're going to balance it all and get it all done. How do you do it? How do you get it all done? 
Well, you know, you got to uh, um, you have good people for one thing, so I have lots of great people, so that helps a lot. And I think the other thing is, you know, you just um, um, I've seen people that allow those sort of issues to get to them uh, mentally, physically, and I think you just, you know, you. Um, again, I go back to my parents and the opportunities in life, and the way I look at it is you tie your top button if you wear a suit, and you go to work every day, you do the best you can, and you, you do what you can, and then um, you, at the end you, um, you, know, you, you keep your whole your, your priorities straight. And so if you have your, your faith, your family, and then your work life, and you keep some balance there, it works out great. What's interesting is um, when you talk to people who work in a hospice, at the end of your life, you talk about two things, and it's, uh, it's real clear. You're going to talk about your faith and your family. And so no one's going to say at the end of life, you know, you've heard this before, I wish I spent more time uh, in the office. But I think as we look at, you know, the decisions we make in life, um, those are the, the decisions that are important. My father uh, passed away about two years ago in Iowa, and uh, he let his cable TV go. The Wi-Fi in the building wasn't working. Uh, he didn't have a newspaper, and I couldn't get internet connection. So I talked to him for two days, probably about three or four months before he passed. And all we talked about was family. And we went over our family over and over again. That's what we talked about. And I think that, you know, is kind of the lesson in life. You know, the decisions we make today on our family and our faith is really those lifelong, you know, balances in life. So when you start with that, and then I think it's just, you know, trying to be the good community citizen that we all should be. And it's being involved in our church. It's being involved in our community trying to make things better. You know, um, it's easy to complain these days. We see that a lot. We see yeah. it modeled everywhere. Yeah, we sure do. And uh, we can't do that. And so if we uh, get up every day and try to make our communities better, the type of place that we want, we you know, our kids want to live in or our grandkids, we think about that. And it's like, well, we need to create that in our own, our own area, where our sphere of influence. And we all can do something wherever, wherever we're at in life. And I, I think that's the point each and every day we get up, we do the best we can. Day by day, right? One day, day at a time. Day by day, absolutely. It is hard to believe that we are already approaching the end of our 30-minute program here this week on Bottom Line Faith. And so, uh, Randy, we've got a question that uh, I'll take just a moment and set the, the stage for the question. We call this our 423 question. Uh, it's based out of Proverbs 423. The words of uh, Solomon says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it determines the course of your life. I've done a little bit of reading on this, and, and our regular listeners to the program know we. this is the last question we ask every guest, right. so join the club, right? right. You're, you're yep. part, of the, part yep. of the family now. But there are many biblical scholars who believe that these were perhaps among the last words that Solomon wrote before he passed. And in fact, uh, some even believe he may have penned these words from his deathbed. So we could have this picture of Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, had all these pearls of wisdom to share and wrote the Psalms and those sorts of things. To say that uh, maybe he gathered his family and friends, his associates, his loved ones, gathered them around and says, no, I've shared all this with you. Now, this one thing, above all else, guard your heart. That was what he wanted to share. So, Randy, let's now fast forward the clock, and let's say it's the end of your time, this side of eternity on earth, and you've gathered your family, your friends, your loved ones, key associates, those who are most important to you in your life, and you're going to dispense your above-all-else advice. Fill in the blank. Folks, above-all-else. At the end of your life, you will talk about two things. You will talk about your faith, and you will talk about your family. 
and keep those in mind. And keep those in mind. And if that uh, every day when you get a little confused and you're thinking about your priorities and your stresses in life, uh, if you think about your faith and you think about your family uh, and you're focused on those issues first and uh, get up every day and work hard and uh, to serve, serve God and serve your family, I think you've, uh, you've done well in life. That's an absolutely stellar response, and it's perspective, right? And uh, I once had a friend say to me to always consider in life giving priority to those who will probably be weeping at your funeral. Right. <laughs> right, and yep. that's really what you're talking about. You're yep. those important family members, but also keeping your faith at the center of life. Some would say, are you building a resume or are you building your eulogy? I love that. I love that. Oh, that's really good. Can I write that down? I don't know. I read that somewhere. That's (laughs) not original. I don't think that's original. I'm going to give you credit for it. That's really good. So as we wrap up here, any closing words of comment, encouragement, or advice you'd like to pass along? No, I think just, um, you know, just the thing I've been... um, uh, focused on lately is, you know, we look at Christ's life, and, uh, you know, it's easy to get caught up in, in secular writers, business leaders, and um, it always amazes me that we, we focus on those folks, and yet the answer is right in front of us in Scripture and the life of Christ, and uh, what better place to go and focus on than that. Fantastic. Well, folks, um, we are wrapping up another edition of the Bottom Line Faith podcast. Our guest has been Randy Oster, the president and CEO of ProMedica. Uh, Randy, um, if if uh, any of our listeners want to learn more about the company, wh- what's your website? Um, it's uh, well, you can send it to me directly. It's ProMedica.org. Um, P-R-O-M-E-D-I-C-A. So if you just Google Prometica, and uh, my address is randy.ostra, two O's, at prometica.org, and happy to have uh, anyone send me an email. Bottom Line Faith is a production of Truth at Work. If you'd like to subscribe to our mailing list to be notified of new episodes, just enter your email address on our website, bottomlinefaith.org. Download and subscribe through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And you can download and listen to every Bottom Line Faith episode at bottomlinefaith.org.